Well, good morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint, and uh, I'm thrilled to welcome you this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, what a great day it is, huh? Beautiful, beautiful sunny sky. We we uh, we did order that, um, and uh, we're we're happy that it turned out the way it did. It's always exciting to celebrate Resurrection Day because it gives us yet another opportunity to celebrate that glorious truth that Jesus Christ, who was cruelly crucified on a Roman cross, was raised in power from the dead on the third day as he had promised, triumphing over sin and the grave. You know, for hundreds of years now, uh, Christians, usually on Easter, mostly on Easter, Christians have spoken this phrase to one another, the Lord is risen yeah, and those who hear it respond, He is risen indeed. And so let's let's just try that. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. Lord is risen. For your awareness, you can view uh, all of our messages. If you're new to LifePoint, you can view all of our messages online at mylpcoli.com forward slash media or on YouTube. And additionally, inside your program this morning, is a form that will assist, assist you if you choose to take notes on the message. But you can also log on to uh, mylpcoli.com forward slash notes, and uh, you, you can type your sermon notes right on your personal device and even email those directly to your own inbox. And uh, I'm told there's also a cheat sheet there with all the notes already filled in. So um, that's that's a great gift. So with that, will you please stand with me again, and let's, if you're able, and let's read our scripture text together, Luke 24, 1 to 35. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? From beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, here's one thing I know this morning, that some of you are here reluctantly, and uh, you came because it was the only way to get a bite of your mother-in-law's scalloped potatoes. That was kind of the the entry fee to the meal that's going to happen later. And uh, if that's true of you today, I I feel your pain. And uh, But I'm glad you're here, and I hope that you'll... uh, I hope you'll give a listen to what we have to say this morning. You know, one of the keys to interpreting the passage that we just read is is to observe four truths or themes that are woven actually throughout the entire chapter, not just the part that we read, but that entire chapter of Luke 24. There's four things. First, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a disruptive, life-transforming historical event. The inescapable realization that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, whom they'd seen die on a cross, was now fully alive, just burst in on them like a tidal wave. And the lives of each one, man or woman, uh, disciple or Jew or Greek or Roman, um, coming to terms with its reality and its significance uh, would, would be forever changed. They would never be the same again. The same is true of us today. Secondly, the the resurrection is the key that unlocks the whole of the Scriptures, the entirety of the Bible. Um, The resurrection is really the absolute center and pivot point of the Bible. The Old Testament, from the books of Moses to the prophet Malachi, all the law, all of the prophets point intently and inexorably to Jesus as the promised Messiah and Redeemer. The New Testament Gospels tell his story, and the remainder of the New Testament really is written to help us to to understand how we ought to live now in light of his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification. 
And third, the resurrection is the key to restoration of ultimate hope. Hope is what gives meaning and value to our lives because Jesus lives and because those who trust in him receive the gift of eternal life. We have great, great hope. And fourth, the resurrection is the message that we've been given for the world. You know, there are, there are a lot of things that people want the church to be and to do. I mean, I, I hear it all the time. Different things people tell me the church ought to, to be about. Uh, and, and often they're good things, but the one essential thing is, is that we are to be proclaimers of the message of the gospel, which says that because Jesus rose from the dead, in order to be reconciled uh, to God through him, each of us must repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. That, and that's at the heart of who we are uh, here at LifePoint, is the heart of what Christianity is really all about, what we're all about in this world as his disciples, and it's the heart of the message that I have to bring to you this morning. In the final verses of the previous chapter, Luke, who wrote this gospel, introduces us to a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. He says that Joseph was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, kind of like a a Jewish supreme court. And then he adds three more facts uh, about him. that First of all, that he was a good and righteous man. Secondly, that he had not consented to the decision and the action of the Sanhedrin when they condemned Jesus to death, which is noteworthy because it's easy to make the mistake of assuming that the decision of that that august group of Jewish religious leaders uh, was monolithic, that it was unanimous. And then finally, uh, Luke says of Joseph that he was looking for the kingdom of God, that he, he was anticipating that God was about to do something, that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the one that had been promised since the earliest chapters of Genesis, uh, was about to show up on the scene. And on that Friday afternoon, when it was confirmed that Jesus was in fact dead, Joseph went to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and, and asked, uh, for Jesus' body. And that permission was granted, and so he took Jesus' lifeless body down from the cross, he wrapped it in a shroud, and he took it and laid it in a tomb that had been cut out of stone where no body had ever yet been laid. And uh, some of the other gospel writers uh, tell us that it was actually a tomb that Joseph himself had had, had prepared for uh, his own body when he died. And because it was late on Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath, the women who were part of Jesus' larger group of followers who had come with him from Galilee, which is in northern Israel, followed Joseph of Arimathea in order to see where he laid Jesus' body so that they could come back on Sunday, which was for them the first day of the week, to properly anoint his body for burial. Uh, As observant Jews, in accordance with the commandments, Luke tells us that they rested on Saturday, uh, which, of course, was the Sabbath. And then as the sun began to rise early on Sunday morning, 
they set out for the tomb. And, and Mark records in his gospel that the one of the concerns on the minds of the women as they made their way to the tomb um, was who might be available to roll that heavy stone away from uh, the door for them so that they could gain access. And, and so they were surprised upon their arrival uh, to find the stone actually had been rolled away and the tomb itself was empty. You know, it's easy, isn't it, uh, in times of, of stress and turmoil to forget the promises of God, uh, to kind of ignore them, to, to lose track of them. In times of stress and strain, of difficulty and loss, of doubt and uncertainty, what we really believe deep down at the core of our being as a way of bubbling up to the surface and it's, and it gets revealed. And on at least four separate occasions before Jesus was arrested and crucified and, and actually with increasing detail, Jesus had informed his disciples that they would go up to Jerusalem, that he would be arrested, that he would suffer at the hands of sinful men and be put to death. But, but that on the third day he would rise again from the dead. The women that day were perplexed to find the tomb empty and then terrified when they realized that two men in dazzling apparel, two angels, not the Anaheim angels, but just two angels from heaven, were, were suddenly standing beside them. We read that in their fear, they bowed their faces to the ground. And you can kind of picture that, right? That, that trembling posture when you realize that you're suddenly in, in the presence of one who is greater than you and more powerful. We, we, we read that in their fear, they were, they were prostrating themselves. And then the angels asked them this question, this incredible question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And uh, it's a question, but there's a pointed message implied in that question, isn't there? I mean, everyone knows that a graveyard is full of dead people. Only in the movies do people visit a cemetery to find something living <laughs> inside a tomb. And then came the news that they may have hoped for, but couldn't allow themselves to to entertain or believe he is not here. He is not here, but he has risen. You won't find him here in the tomb because he who was dead is now alive. And, and, and both of those things the angel said, I think, are important for our time. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And he is not here, but has risen. It's an amazing thing about our culture that we increasingly are consulting the realm of the dead, to understand how we ought to live. So a question arises, are we living our lives? Are we conducting our affairs as if it's really true? Or are we making decisions as if it isn't, as if Jesus really isn't alive, as if he's dead or, even worse, merely irrelevant? And these are perhaps the most pertinent and intellectually honest questions we ought to be asking on a day like this and, and every day. Because if we're honest, we'll have to admit 
that the question of, of whether Jesus did or did not rise from the dead is, is no longer the question. Uh, the preponderance of the evidence, both internal and external to the Bible, says that he did. In fact, one secular historian reluctantly noted that there's more accumulated evidence, even apart from the Bible, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a fact of history than for the very existence, very existence in history of Julius Caesar. Well, think about that. Think about that. So, so again, the real question for Resurrection Sunday is, is whether we're ordering our lives and making decisions according to that truth. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, tells the story of a conversation he had with a woman who said that she simply could not become a Christian because she fundamentally objected to the moral teaching of the Bible. And he challenged her with this. He said, what if you just set aside your objections long enough to consider whether or not the central claim of Christianity is true, that that Jesus of Nazareth literally and physically rose from the dead as a matter of historical fact. Because if he didn't, then the moral mandates of the Bible are proven to be irrelevant. But on the other hand, if he did, then the only possible conclusion is that he's God. And he must be honored, and he must be reverenced, and he must be obeyed. And, and so you're going to have to come to terms with all of that eventually anyway. Well, what came next was a prompt to remember, to remember. When you're in the midst of stress and strain, it's important to get your bearings. Remember, to remember what? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. That was what the angel said to the women. And they did remember. And and notice what they did next. They hurried, it says, to find the apostles and tell them all that they had seen and heard. They were compelled. They were driven. It was an earth-shattering, history-altering, life-transforming moment and message, and, and good news simply has to be shared. And by the way, acknowledging the women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection gives incredible authenticity to Luke's account. And, and in fact, all four of the gospel writers do it. And here's one of the indicators that those men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were telling the truth and that the gospel isn't just a set of mythological tales, as some have suggested. And how can I say that? It's because in that time, the testimony of women was considered suspect. So whether it was in the Roman courts or the Jewish courts, women weren't even allowed to testify in legal proceedings. So if someone, anyone in those days, was merely trying to write a, an interesting story that they hoped would be somewhat believable, they, they would never, ever have written women into the story as credible, dependable eyewitnesses to anything. 
The only reason that any of the gospel writers would have included this detail is that it was actually true. And notice verses 10 to 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You see, there it is. It's an idle tale. By the way, here's here, here's another point. Richard Bauckham in his book, and the title's eluding me now, but it's just this thick tome on, on oh, it's on the eyewitnesses to 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 the resurrection. Makes this point that including the names, I mean, Luke could have just said the women who were following Jesus. He could have just kind of lumped them together, but he names them by name, and and he makes the point that in those days to include names specific names, it was like footnoting what you were writing because it's kind of the essence of, if you, if you don't believe me, go talk to these people. You can go talk to them. They're, they're still around. The same thing is true in the, the, the name of uh, the guy that we're going to see in the second part of this passage, Cle- uh, Cle- Cleopas. Why, why, do, why are we given his name? It's because Luke was saying, go check with Cleopas. He, he must have been someone that everybody knew. Uh, that would would probably read what he wrote, but then Luke adds this in verse twelve of twenty of chapter twenty four but peter 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 rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened um in John's gospel, where you read that John was with him and that John actually won the foot race, which, which I, don't, I don't know why John included that, but he, he seemed to think it was important to point out for posterity that he won that race. But in verses 13 to 35, then, we come to the second part of Luke 24 and the, the account of those two disciples who were on their way home from Jerusalem. They, they were, they'd had it. They were going home. Beginning of verse 13, we read this, that that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. By the way, um, archaeologists don't know where Emmaus was. They'll find it someday. Um, But it it must have been in a seven-mile radius from Jerusalem because that's what we're told. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So two disciples, they're not apostles. They're part of that larger group of people that were following Jesus. They're walking to the village of Emmaus. As they're talking, as they're discussing, the word means debating, actually disputing, arguing maybe about all that had happened in Jerusalem. Luke tells us, and notice those two words. He says that Jesus himself drew near. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Uh, We don't know these men. We don't know why the risen Jesus chose to join them on that day, on that road. But here's what we do know. We know that Jesus knew them as he knows you and me, and that he's never random. He's always intentional. So we know that, that he had a purpose for this moment in the lives of 
these men, these two men. And then we read that the eyes of the two men on the road to Emmaus were kept from recognizing Jesus. And again, we, we don't know why, um, but it begins to give us some insight into kind of the nature of the resurrected body of Jesus. It's possible that Jesus simply wanted to reorient, reassure these men before revealing himself to them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And, and I want you to notice what Luke says about them. They stood still looking sad. They stood still looking sad. What a picture. Can you imagine? On the most hope-filled day in the history of heaven and earth, when the crucified Son of God has risen from the dead, they stood still looking sad. And these, these men with their gloomy faces were sorrowful. They were dejected. They were deeply disappointed. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in those days? And he said to them, What things? What things? So so he's drawing them out. He wants to hear what they have to say. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped. Would you just make note of that? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Again, don't miss that phrase in verse 21. We had hoped. Here's the reason for their sadness. Here's the reason that the question that Jesus asked them brought them to a standstill. We had hoped. They'd been hopeful, but their hopes were now dashed and their hearts were now broken. I wonder if that might describe you this morning whether you might be experiencing sadness on this Easter Sunday, struggling to find hope. Maybe you're disappointed with God, disappointed with how your life is turning out, disappointing, disappointed by unfaithful friends, disappointed with your career or your income, disappointed with your marriage or your marital status or your family, disappointed with your body or your health or your appearance, disappointed with events in our nation and our world. Maybe the future that you had anticipated with friends or family has been wiped away by sickness or death. So begin with the three-word phrase, we had hoped, and just finish the sentence. We had hoped. See, whatever the source of your disappointment, even your disillusionment may be, I want you to know today that Jesus knows. He knows all about it. He knows every detail, and he cares deeply. And here's a window on why Jesus 
the resurrected Son of God drew near to these men on the road to Emmaus. Psalm 34:18 tells us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus has arrived on the scene to renew their hope. The men continued their story. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I don't know if you noticed, but a little earlier, Cleopas identifies Jesus as a prophet. Not now, reflecting what the Apostle Peter had said about him, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now now to Cleopas, he's just another dead prophet. But there's been news that he has risen. We can't confirm it. They'd heard the message of the women. They'd heard the report from the apostles. But their minds had not received it. And nor had their hearts believed it. And now, don't miss Jesus' answer. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And notice with me what he didn't say to them. He, he didn't say, oh, ignorant ones, and intellectually deficient. It's not what he said. Instead, he calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Jesus is pointing out to them an essential truth that to to disbelieve the word of God is not primarily an intellectual matter. That's not to say that there isn't an intellectual dimension to Christian faith. Nor is it to say, as some do, that, that to embrace biblical faith requires intellectual suicide. It is to say that the believing and receiving takes place not only on the intellectual level, but more importantly on a deeper level, that part of us that the Bible calls the heart. And the gist of that idea in Scripture that it's, is that it's the, the core of your being. Some have pictured the heart and what the Bible teaches about the heart as as describing the throne room of our lives where we reign supreme, where we make the decisions, where we call the shots until we relinquish that throne and Jesus Christ takes his rightful place as the sovereign Lord. You know, there are many who are biblically and theologically educated who can espouse Christian doctrine with impeccable accuracy but who have never gotten off the throne of their own lives. And who, knowing the truth, never ever allow it to actually set them free. 
The writer of Proverbs described them this way, whoever trusts in his own mind, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. See, Jesus in so many words told his two disciples on the road to Emmaus that to have the scriptures and not to know them, not to respond to them, is the essence of foolishness. If you have the scriptures, you're accountable to know them and act on them. Or, the Bible says, Jesus says, you're a fool. When we get to verses 25 to 27, we find that they represent the greatest sermon never written. The greatest sermon never written. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't that be marvelous? It's the greatest sermon never written because no one else got to hear it. And those two disciples could not have reproduced it to save their own lives. But what Luke's telling us here is that Jesus walked them through the entire Old Testament to demonstrate the truth that's expressed in verse 26, that it all pointed to one central truth, that it was necessary to, for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer and to die, that, that all the prophets had taught that, and to be raised from the dead, to, to ascend into heaven and to sit down at the right hand of God. See, the Jews largely rejected Jesus from consideration as the promised Messiah because they simply didn't possess a category for a Messiah who came to suffer and even die. And for that reason, they didn't have room for the cross. And this explains why Peter, when Jesus had earlier begun to predict his suffering and death, rebuked him and said to to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter on that occasion and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it also helps us understand why the disciples, 40 days after his resurrection, as Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, after all that had happened and all that they had seen and all that he had shown them, all that he had taught them, asked the question, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And the Bible says that Jesus ascended into heaven with his hands raised in a posture of blessing. But I think maybe as as he had heard that question and began to ascend into heaven, his eyeballs were also rolling. Because he realized they still didn't get it. He said they, they expected a Messiah who looked a lot more like Conan the Barbarian than like Jesus, the suffering servant. Someone who looked a lot more like Alexander the Great, who would throw off the oppression of Rome and and establish Israel as the superpower in the world. 
And yet 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet, as one of many, had pointed to the real work the Messiah would come to do. He wrote, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Any rebels here this morning? Finally, Luke tells us that Jesus was made known to those two men in the breaking of the bread. In the breaking of the bread. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. Uh, he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the sky is now far, or the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, that's the the twelve apostles minus Judas Iscariot, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they, the two men, told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You see, having understood something of the essence of Jesus' suffering and death, having their hopes restored by the realization that he was raised from the dead and fully alive, they had a message they simply had to share with others, as the women also had at the empty tomb. And as I said earlier, our message to you this morning is the same message they share, that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a rich man's tomb, is risen from the dead. The Bible tells us that the resurrection is the validation that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Romans 1.4, he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you ever wondered why it is that Christians claim that Jesus is the Son of God? There it is. And it all rests on that one thing, the historical veracity of the message that he had been raised from the dead. He was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Later in that letter of Paul to the church in Rome, he wrote that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is, on the cross, Jesus was delivered up for your trespasses. The Bible teaches that Jesus died in your place. He died for your sins. He he took your death penalty. Paul said the wage of sin is death. 
any sin, all sin. The wage of sin is death. But then he was raised for your justification. He, had, he bore the penalty of your sin, and he was raised so that you could be justified. What does it mean to be justified? Well, I love this simple, I could give you a big theological answer, but I, I love this simple definition someone once shared with me. He said, when I'm justified, it means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. If I'm justified, it's, it's, that it, it's just as if I'd never sinned. So as I stand before God and God looks on me, it's as if he sees a pure, righteous person in spite of all that I've done. Allow me to close with this. In the very next chapter, Romans 5, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says five very important things about justification here. Let me just give them to you quickly. First, he says that the basis for our justification is faith. It's faith. See, we're not we're justified not by good works, not by religion, and you can throw into that religion bucket anything you like. We're not saved by our religion. We're not saved by any number of things that people mistakenly believe will earn God's favor. To put your faith in Christ means to just let go of all of that as if it's just garbage, just refuse, just just let go of it and rest your faith solely and, and fully on what Jesus Christ accomplished for you through his death and his resurrection. Secondly, to be justified by faith, Paul says, is to be at peace with God. A life that's not at peace with God is a tormented life of trying to fill the void where peace should be with all kinds of other things. We're trying to achieve peace by all kinds of other means. But here's the reality. Only the Prince of Peace can provide ultimate peace with God. Third, to be justified by faith, Paul says, grants us access into the realm of God's grace. God's grace. And he says, we stand in grace. You know, some people think of the the Christian life as, as receiving God's forgiveness and then spending the rest of your life working as hard as you possibly can to deserve it. They think of the Christian life as as just work, 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 work. This is not at all what the Bible teaches, because the reality is you and I can never, by, by all of our good works, solve the problem of our separation from God. We can never deserve it. The point of the cross is that we never will and never could be 
worthy. And so we stand in grace, in his unmerited favor toward us, even in our sin. Why? Because he loves us. Just a few verses later, Paul said that God demonstrated his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means he didn't wait for us to clean up our act. Because he knows that we can't, and only he can. Fourth, to be justified by faith is to receive the gift of great hope. And in this, we rejoice. This present life will never fully satisfy us for one simple reason, that we were made for another world. We were saved for another world, another life, and that life awaits us. Fifth, Paul says that hope in turn gives us a new perspective on suffering, on disappointment with people and events and circumstances, and that in that new perspective results in even greater hope. What's required of us to receive this justification from God? Again, Paul said, if you openly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See, believing not just in your intellect, but believing in your heart and the core of your being where, where the decisions are made. That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's, that's a promise. You can take that to the bank. Our prayer for you on this Easter Sunday is that you will believe that in your heart and receive His grace that covers all of your sin. Let's pray together. Lord, what an incredible message the cross and the empty tomb present to us. And your grace is too far beyond us to even begin to understand. We can't wrap our minds. We can never wrap our minds around it. And yet as we begin to believe it, even the the slightest hint of faith you respond to And you save us from our sins. You justify us before God. You, that which we can't wrap our minds around, you you take and wrap yourself around us. You wrap us in the robes of your righteousness, not our own, so that as we stand before God, it's just as if we had never sinned. All because of the cross all because of the empty tomb, all because Jesus is alive, gloriously, eternally alive, and he extends to us the gift of sins forgiven and eternity secured. Lord, may you bring that message home to our hearts today. And we pray it in the name of our crucified, buried, risen, ascended, glorified, coming again, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.